Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Um, so I'm Matthew Taylor, I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA. And now it's an extra special pleasure to welcome today's uh, speaker, my good friend Jeff Mulgan. Jeff is, as I'm sure you all know well, Chief Executive at Nestor, although not for much longer. How many more days? A couple of weeks, very good. Uh, he's a pioneer in the field of social innovation, which in case you needed a definition, he describes very neatly in his excellent new book as innovation that is social in both its means and its ends. Jeff has a distinguished career uh, advising governments, businesses, foundations, both here in the UK and around the world. His latest work is a distillation of a vast body of knowledge and experience, an essential handbook for anyone interested in how social change happens and what it takes to make it stick. I read it last night, and I've used it twice already in meetings in the RSA. Um, the book argues convincingly that we need social innovation now more than ever if we're to find answers to the many challenges facing us as we enter the next decade of the 21st century, from social inequality to the climate emergency. It feels especially useful uh, for us to have the chance to talk to Jeff today, so close to election day. Uh, once again, we found ourselves in a campaign that's focused too often simply on what governments do, uh, what government will do to us and for us, as opposed to how they might go about it in partnership with us. In fact, I found out, because I was reading your blogs this morning, you wrote a blog which on, 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 published on the same day as a blog I wrote on exactly the same topic, which is why is, why is this election not been about how we do things and just about kind of aspirations and a very traditional kind of approach to to change. Uh, the format for today's event is that Jeff will kick off with a short opening talk and some slides, followed by some conversation with me before we open up to the floor for questions, and we should have plenty of time for you to carry on with your Christmas shopping when we close uh, at two o'clock. So lots in store for the hour ahead. Let's get started by giving a warm welcome to Jeff Martin. Well, uh, good afternoon, and thank you all for coming out on a particularly miserable uh, spitting day on a week which may or may not raise our spirits by its end, and we may come to that later. What I'm going to do is give you a, a flavour of some of the ideas and arguments in this book, and then I hope we can sort of pull it apart uh, constructively uh, in the remaining time. So that's, uh, that's the book, and in, in a way it is an attempt to be about what it says, how do societies find the power to change, and why might, may they sometimes not be able to change. And I'm going to start with some fish, partly because I, I like fish, uh, and it makes us think of hot seas and summertime. But this, this shows you a uh, shoal of fish responding to predators. And the fish are actually very good at cooperating together, working with each other to combat and not be eaten by these bigger, vicious fish. And in a way, the, the sort of paradox, and this is one of the starting points for the book, is why are humans not as good as doing this as fish? Why are we so vulnerable to fraudsters, manipulators, predators, bullies of all kinds? And what could we do to strengthen society's capacities to be a little bit more fish-like, in this sense, at least? So I'm going to start with a question, um, uh, which, if you've read the book, is answered on about page two. So please don't answer if you have read it. Uh, and it starts with the World Happiness Survey 2019, which many of you, of course, being very knowledgeable RSA people, may have read. And the question is, what one factor best predicts where nations score in terms of world happiness? Does anyone in the room hazard a guess? What's the best predictor of how happy a country is? Quality. Sorry? Equality. Equality could be that. Trust. Trust. Social relations. Social relations. Education. So the answer is, one of you got it right, uh, 
people's answers to the question, if you were in trouble, do you have relatives or friends you can count on to help you whenever you need them or not, explains more of the differences than GDP income or life expectancy, much more than education or even equality. And if you're interested, that is the ranking with Finland, which now has this government entirely made up of women in their 30s uh, at the top, uh, followed by the various other Scandinavians. And the reason for sharing this is not to dive into happiness, so that's a, a great topic, but more to ask why is it that all over the world, governments spend lots of taxpayers' money on R&D, on science and so on. They can all give a very good account of how they do that to drive up GDP and income. Many of them can give quite a good account of how they spend money on R&D and brain power for life expectancy and health and medicines. None of them have anything remotely like an answer to how they mobilize brain power to improve their answers to this question, to social solidarity and support. And a little symptom of that um, in the US is that in the decades when the internet became the dominant part of daily life, so 90s, 2000s, the percentage of Americans who answered no to this question went up from about 8% to about 25%. So there was a, a serious decline of, sort of social value, resources, capital, even as these apparently uh, linking technologies were spreading. And although lots of organizations had a responsibility for how do you use the internet to maximize click-through advertising or whatever, whatever else it may be, no one thought it was their job to be actually investing in research around countering the pathologies. Not just this, but also all the other things from fake news and trolling. So that's, in some ways, the premise of why social innovation matters is that it's, <laughs> it matters to do this better. And just as your best likelihood of increasing your income long term is to invest R&D in innovation, new ideas, new products and services, the same is true of social support. So I'm going to give you a, a few um, examples of how the field of doing social innovation has grown and become a lot more organized than 15 or 20 years ago. So this is the good news story. I'm going to turn to the bad news story a bit later. But the good news story is there's now lots of funds, social investment funds, 500 billion in impact investment, government funds for social innovation, hundreds of social impact bonds, the big technology innovation agencies, or at least some of them now adding in social innovation to their funding of um, uh, pharmaceuticals, digital, etc. There's been a big growth of interest amongst governments. So quite a few have national policies for social innovation. Uh, Malaysia, Korea, Sweden, uh, Canada, Justin Trudeau's putting another billion dollars into social innovation uh, after his election. Uh, a lot being done by the European Commission. There are mayors from Seoul to Bologna and Barcelona who define themselves as social innovation mayors and all sorts of labs doing work uh, across the world. The whole sort of university world has got much more interested. There are lots of research centers, courses, and so on. I won't go through all of this. Uh, and there's also a whole continuing upsurge of grassroots, bottom-up, people-driven social innovation. Now, almost none of this existed 15 years ago. So in some ways, there's a good story of putting in place the more systematic machineries to fund, understand, grow social innovations of all kinds. Uh, and that wasn't guaranteed. It's meant that social innovation has just begun a little bit to catch up with what we take for granted in science. In science, we take for granted 
that 2, 3, 4% of GDP will be invested in new science, that it will be backed by power and government, that there will be you know, research centers in engineering and physics and chemistry and nanotech and so on across our universities. And with citizen science, there's a sort of people story. And so the social is slowly catching up with the rest. And there are lots of good examples. I'm just going to share uh, a couple which I like. So this is one I'm a bit involved in since I started with happiness. So Action for Happiness is an organization with uh, about 150,000 members, which originally had one member of staff. It's a kind of new model of social innovation, of which there's lots. Where using the internet, you can create lots of capability uh, with very lean resources. And in a few weeks' time, we'll be publishing the results of its, um, uh, the course, uh, which you can see here being launched by the Dalai Lama, which actually um, has had a fantastic RCT, I'm not allowed to say the results, in making people both happier and more socially connected. So that was a bit of an advert for Action for Happiness. A very different example, which um, is in the sort of social innovation and collective intelligence space, is this one from Africa. We Farm is a grouping of about 2.5 million farmers in Africa who use SMS technology so that if... Rose's crop is suffering from a disease. She can then ask the whole crowd to come up with good ideas of what to do about it. Uh, and using a bit of clever AI, they get the question to the right people in the community with an answer. And then she gets pretty quickly uh, some, some options of what to do to her crop. So this is another very different kind of social innovation, probably inconceivable 10 or 20 years ago, but at pretty large scale. And then this is another one which we, we incubated at Nesta, Good Sam, one of quite a few smartphone-activated medics um, uh, projects so that if you have a heart attack on the strand, as you phone the ambulance at the same time, it will find a trained volunteer medic close by who can come to you. It will tell them where the nearest defibrillator is. And if you get there a few minutes before the ambulance, you greatly increase the patient's chances of survival. And again, this is a, a new kind of social innovation. It's spread all over the world because it's open source technology, very simple, very cheap, very replicable. And the positive story of this whole field is of literally thousands of examples like these becoming possible, mobilizing social commitment, some using technology, many not using technology at all, and meeting social needs in new ways. So, what's the negative story? Well, one half of the negative story is these guys who in different ways hate this stuff. Um, so there was an Office of Social Innovation in the White House until uh, Donald turned up. Uh, and as far as I'm aware, there's nothing in the federal US government supporting this field. Putin has really crushed what was quite a, a, an interesting emergent social innovation scene across Russia. Uh, Duterte in the Philippines has actually locked up some of the key activists. And Bolsonaro in Brazil is luckily in, so incompetent, he probably can't crush it, but he would like to. I mean, all of these big sort of classic authoritarian leaders are suspicious of the idea that societies themselves find the power to change, try things out, have ideas, get supported. In their worldview, change has to come from the top, from them. They have to monopolize change ideally in an alliance with strong media, the army, uh, and so on. And in some ways, they've crystallized the political side of social innovation by so exemplifying 
the opposite. So that's part of the negative story. The other negative is really about how innovation is still done globally. So if you look across the world, there's a kind of hierarchy which says that most resources for innovation go to the military. In the US, it's still over 50% of government R&D uh, goes to defense. Then later on, business and social, much, much later on, if at all. And you can see this with things like drone technology, so mainly developed for firing missiles at um, villages in Pakistan or Afghanistan. Belatedly, then Amazon getting interested in how you might use drones for retail deliveries. And only much later, the beginnings of experiment on using them in Rwanda for medical supplies and things like that. And we always take for granted that's how the world works. It's very visible in AI now. Again, huge investment in military applications of AI. Then in the last 10 years, massive commercial investment by Google and Facebook and Alibaba and Tencent. And only just beginning to be serious investment in AI for social good. We at Nesta run two or three funds of this kind for the government here on uh, labor markets and education. But what's really striking is how rare these are around the world. There are almost none, no funds of that kind. And so there's this huge imbalance in how we allocate money. And what follows from it is brain power, because money is then pulling in clever, ambitious people. And far more of them are working on drones or click-through advertising than on solving social problems. And I argue in the book, this, this imbalance is one of the reasons why we have this phenomenon of dynamic economies often, dynamic technology, and feelings of social stagnation, feelings we make no progress in solving issues of you know, refugee integration or homelessness or uh, isolation of the elderly. And, and I get sort of structurally built into how we organize our collective brain power. And I think a lot of people feel that in their daily lives, that, uh, that sense of imbalance. Uh, and, and in a way, what the book is, is a, is a clarion call, I hope, for trying to rectify that imbalance and being as serious in our innovation around these sorts of things as we are innovation in aerospace or nanotechnology or pharmaceuticals or the web. So where, where is this field going? And to give you a quick flavor of a few of the spaces which I think are, are going to be important in the next five or 10 years and hopefully of interest to the RSA. So one is politics. I think because of the political reaction against social innovation, you see lots of social innovators becoming more political. This is a picture from Hong Kong where the activists were extraordinarily creative in how to organize themselves, bypassing mobile networks and so on and the web. And Hong Kong has become a real hotbed of social innovation, partly supported by Carrie Lam and the government, weirdly, but also from the grassroots up in very different ways. And there's a lot of social innovation people now getting into rewiring democracy, like Audrey Tang in Taiwan, who's digital minister and has created sort of social innovation leads in each of the departments to try and embed a different way of doing democracy and government. So this space is going to be important, interesting, often in direct conflict with governments rather than working with them. We've got a, a, another emergent field of digital social innovation, social innovators looking at how to use data or the web or AI or blockchain. And over the last few years at Nesta, we helped coordinate this network across Europe of about two, 
two and a quarter thousand organizations doing digital innovation. We did a map of how different cities are supporting it. And it's really, again, this is a field which hardly existed 10 years ago. It's sometimes called tech for good or civic tech. But it is trying to deliberately ask how we use this extraordinary um, cornucopia of technologies more systematically to solve social problems. Uh, and one of the tasks of this movement is to also engage with the older NGOs, charities, trade unions, to help them learn how to use these tools as a, as a social force. Linked to that is the, the slightly different but also interesting uh, growing use of AI in the context of social innovation. And this is a picture from one example in the US, Allegheny County in Pennsylvania, which is one of the more advanced places trying to use AI uh, and, and multiple data sets on children at risk to better target, better prevent maltreatment of all kinds. And there are similar projects in quite a few countries all sorts of issues around ethics, but potentially very powerful in helping to understand, preempt, predict uh, social problems of all kinds. And as I said earlier, this has come late. Uh, AI for surveillance or the military is far ahead, but I think this will become a, a very important field um, in, in, in much of the world. A slightly different strand is the rise of experimentalism and the interest in evidence as part of the social innovation scene. Um, so I think you have Esther Duflo here in a few weeks' time. Yeah. Or you just had her? You had her, yeah. Yeah. So we've always taken for granted the best way of finding out if a drug works is you try it out on people. Uh, we've seen growing interest in the use of experiments and randomized control trials in development, which Esther Duflo and, uh, and her colleagues pioneered and won the Nobel Prize for uh, two months ago. Uh, quite a bit of work on social experimentation. France really led that, large-scale funds, testing out different ways of helping young people. Uh, there's now several hundred experiments in education. At Nesta, we run a thing called the Innovation Growth Lab, which now works in about 20 countries, testing out business support models, but all with a control group. And there are various governments like in Finland and Canada, which have tried to embed this into their ways of working. And it's very much taking from social innovation the principle that if you have an idea, try it out small scale and fast before experimenting on the whole country at once, which is what the UK prefers doing, uh, which is rather inefficient. And, and linked to that is the increasing interest in, in evidence and impact, what actually works. Because nearly always when you do experiments, you get surprising results you almost never get quite what you expected. So it's a dynamic discovery process. And a government which is really serious about experiment is quite different in spirit to one which just does things through diktat and law. There's a very boring field, but which I'm really interested in, which is about innovations in money, I guess, from running a foundation. Uh, and again, in the last 10 years, there's been an explosion of new ways of experimenting with ways of using money to get better results, not just grants, loans, equity, quasi-equity, convertible loans, grants with royalties, challenge prizes, crowdfunding, da-da-da, social impact bonds, and so on. Uh, and again, this is, a, this is a lively field. I think will become much more, again, much more normal in the next few years that if you are a funder or a government agency or a foundation, that you will be using many different kinds of hybrids of money 
to achieve your, your goals. And sometimes, as with match crowdfunding, you know, trying to mobilize social support, community support alongside top-down money. In the business world, there is some discussion of corporate social innovation as the so replacement or the evolution of CSR uh, embedded more closely into core business activities. And a lot of examples around the world, this is one I quite like from um, the Caribbean and Latin America, many businesses coming together in a much more collaborative exercise around opportunities for young people. And I think we're beginning to see a more serious field of CSI, which on the one hand is more collaborative rather than each CSR project wanting all the credit, but also more serious about measurement and impact and scrutiny and not just being sort of PR exercises. And then there's the, the just transition. And for fairly obvious reasons, this is going to be a big part of the social innovation story in the next um, five or 10 years. Uh, I published a piece on Friday about the EU's Green Deal and, and a few weeks ago, one on how social innovation can contribute to decarbonization. As soon as you look at you know, how a circular economy will run in practice, and this is a picture from, uh, from Finland, which is probably about as advanced as anywhere in thinking this through, as always, a circular economy involves lots of new technologies and business models, but also lots of new ways of organizing society. <coughs> if you're going to halve you know, the turnover of fashion, of food waste, and so on. You actually need to organize your towns and cities and industries and skills in very different ways. And it's not just the technology uh, which will get you there. And you can see that across Europe in examples like Freiburg, which is Europe's uh, greenest city. But it's only its greenest city by designing into the very fabric of the buildings uh, people not having cars, having to recycle, different consumption patterns, and so on. And all across the world, there's a lot of very creative interaction of the just transition arguments and social innovation. This is a very bad picture I took a few weeks ago, because uh, I'm not a very good cameraman, uh, from Seoul. But what you can see here is a neighborhood where about 50,000 people uh, have put solar panels on their roofs. So they generate their own uh, energy, run it collectively, and share both in the financial savings and contribute to big carbon reductions for the city as a whole. So it's a bit of technology, but mainly a social innovation as part of uh, radical decarbonization plans. And then just two more examples before I, I shut up. This is one which um, we're trying to lobby a little bit on in the election. And this is really the social innovation dimension of death. Popular topic, death. Um, so this is maybe familiar to many of you. This is the sort of standard analysis of what leads to premature death or ill health. And most people would agree it's mainly behaviors, social circumstances, environmental factors, and a significant bit of genetics. But health care is usually only about 10 or 20% of the contribution to healthiness and premature death. And for the RSA, that's kind of pretty obvious. Um, for our debate in the election, no one mentions it at all. Uh, you think health was entirely about healthcare. And if you look in R&D and research in health, nearly all of it is devoted not just to this bit, but to little slices of this bit, mainly around things like pharma. And so we've been arguing for the creation of a new institution alongside the Crick Centre in King's Cross and Genomics England, but to really systematically uh, scale up 
research and development around social, behavioural and environmental causes of ill health. And because next year is the 200th anniversary of Florence Nightingale, we're arguing it should be called the Nightingale uh, and should have a couple hundred million a year to spend but not just doing traditional research, but using social innovation methods, much more active, much more experimental, much more working with patients, with citizens, and with communities. And there's quite broad support now for this, and our hope is a new Secretary of State may see this as blindingly obvious. Um, of course, they may not, but there's no good scientific argument against it. The only arguments against it are essentially arguments of vested interest from the beneficiaries from the current system. Uh, and then finally, a word about time. So if you look at, uh, and this is another reason why I think social innovation, even if in the short term it faces some setbacks, in the medium term has big opportunities. So this is a 500-year graph on life expectancy, and the key point is that now it is basically going up pretty fast everywhere. Even if in the UK it might have stalled the last year or two. But our best guess is that it will go up in the next 50 years. And working time, great interest of this organization, again, if you look over a 200-year uh, time horizon, has been steadily falling. In the Netherlands, it's now down to 29 hours a week on average. Uh, and on average, it's not much higher, actually, even in the UK. Put those two together, and we're in this very odd position where the average age of a population is older than ever before, but the number of years left to live on average is also greater than ever. And if you combine the life expectancy and average hours worked declining, then probably in the next 50 years, there'll be an enormous sort of liberation of time, billions and billions of hours, which could all be spent watching Netflix series uh, and sort of defeating sleep, which is their goal in life. But it could also be an enormous resource for the social economy to organize in new ways using um, uh, some of the methods I described. And I, I'm fairly hopeful we won't only want to watch Netflix, but we will create new systems, probably between pure volunteering and classic paid work, to help make our societies better and to solve the problem I mentioned at the beginning, i.e. how do we actually support each other to live better. And a very final point, because uh, Matthew knows his work, is just to, to share a comment from a piece Roberto Mangabera Unger uh, wrote for us a few years ago which I think is a really interesting dilemma for the social innovation field, is whether it thinks of itself as minimalist, which is just part of the third sector, part of civil society, doing interesting and important things, or whether it's the maximalist view, where every social innovation, here's the key, is that the small initiatives that have the greatest potential to foreshadow, by persuasive example, the transformation of those arrangements and of that consciousness. So that social innovation is how a society imagines different structures, different systems, and the different consciousness, which is necessary for those to become part of normal life. And my hope is in the next 10 years, the whole field moves a little bit from the minimalist to the maximalist, perhaps partly in reaction against the forces of darkness that may be running some of our countries. Uh, anyway, that's a, a final thought, and I'll just leave you with some fish and see if we can become more fish-like. Thank you. I'm just I'm sitting here. Great. If only Roberto Ungaro managed to express himself more pithily. Yes, uh... um, 
two points about your slides just before I start getting into this. Uh, your Neo example, did you notice that there's 100 people in it and there's only two women? <laughs> and secondly, you need to change the Trump. He looks quite, the Trump, Trump looks quite nice in the picture you've got of him. It's really, the, he, the more he looks at it, the more benign he seemed to me. So I think you need to change it. Uncle those. Donald. Yeah. Uncle Donald. Yeah. Um, it, I haven't read the whole book, uh, but one thing that really surprised me, and it would have surprised me a week ago, but it really surprises me now, is I'm not sure you mentioned Parkrun once in your... Mm -hmm. book mm -hmm. and I'm kind of surprised by that because I think that Parkrun is probably the most mm. successful social innovation in the UK in the last 15 years mm. and could prove to be one of the most successful social innovations in the world. Mm. Um, we gave the Albert Medal last yeah. week uh, to Paul Sinton Hewitt. Mm. Um, so firstly that's just a kind of little question which is what happened to poor old Parkrun is it just because yeah. Nesta didn't fund it and then, <laughs> uh, and, and then secondly uh, because I'm a Parkrunner because I'm mm blown away by it. I thought a lot about what makes it work. Mm. And I think the thing that makes it work, and this is why I'm interested in, 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 in whether you think this is a common theme, is that it combines things that are rarely combined together. And in particular with Park Run, what it combines is total accessibility. Mm. So anybody can run. It doesn't matter how fat you are, how old you are, on fit you are, you can do it in jeans. They have four generations of the same family running together. Mm. Totally accessible. On the other hand, we all get our times and we actually run it as individuals in an incredibly competitive way and want to be, you know, I always want to be the fastest old bloke. Yeah. Although there's one old bloke who just follows me around the world and always beats me wherever I go. But um, uh, yeah. it, that theme of combining things that are not often combined, is that, is that something that we see often in the best social innovations? I think it's true of almost any, any field of innovation, perhaps even more social innovation, they always are. Uh, recombinations often of elements which haven't been put together. And so I, I agree with you, Park, Park Run is extraordinary in its scale and its popularity. It's what, two and a half million now? I can't remember the regular... I think 200,000 run every Saturday and two and a half million. <laughs> yeah. But his yeah. aim, and I, yeah. no reason why he won't reach it, is in 10 years it'll be 100 million every Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, there's another example which, which we've been a bit involved in which is a bit like Park Run, but also a combination one called Good Gym, which some of you may have heard of, which essentially is like, it's, sort of, it's, it's, a, it's an organisation for people to do runs with others, but at the same time as doing the runs, you go and visit uh, perhaps an isolated old man or lady who hasn't had a visitor in the week or do some, collect some shopping or help with the gardening. Uh, and when that was first proposed to me, I thought it would not work at all. I thought the idea of, you know... <clears throat> an old lady wanting some sweaty 22-year-old coming in was pretty miserable. But actually, it's worked really well. That is now scaled um, to many thousands all across the country. And it is exactly, as you said, it's combining, in this case, physical exercise and personal goals with sort of community volunteering. And it works. They both work. Park Run is much, much bigger. But I, I'd say actually Good Gym is probably much more impactful per runner mm -hmm. just because that's designed in, whereas Park Run is mainly for the individual. Yeah. The thing about Park Run is that ultimately it's a public health initiative, and it's, yeah. it's just an amazing. Uh, you know, it, public health initiatives are very often not terribly evidence-based, not easy to scale, and their impact is uncertain. Whereas Park Run kind of smashes it throughout the park, um, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, uh, so to speak. Um, that takes me to a broader issue in 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 the book, which is a kind of the dialectical element of social. Uh, uh, innovation, that in a sense what we're talking about here is a, a process whereby, as it were, ideas emerge often as a consequence of people being dissatisfied with the way things are. And then those ideas go through your kind of S process of 
the innovation process. They then become embodied in some form or another, in a policy or a structure or institution, at which point they start to disappoint people and the whole process starts uh, all over again. And one of the points you make in the book is that we might underestimate the fact that social innovation sounds like a lovely and positive thing, but it does involve pain. It involves disruption. It involves people who feel as though they've solved something being told, no, you haven't solved it at all. And maybe we need to kind of recognise the pain of social innovation a bit more. There's quite a few pains of social innovation, if you want to go there. But I think the, the main one is just, is just frustration. I mean, I, I argue in the book there's, in any society, there are millions of promising ideas being generated around kettles or front rooms or whatever, and only a tiny fraction of them even get to the first stage where they can be tried out in practice, and then of those, only a tiny, tiny fraction uh, are allowed to scale. And that's, in a sense, what's happened in the sciences is a whole system which increases the odds of the promising idea getting to testing, getting to development, getting to scale. So that's sort of the pain number one is just the, I think, constant frustration of social creativity because we lack the system to support it. Then, if you succeed, there's a different kind of pain, as you describe. Uh, and uh, I quote the sociologist George Simmel about 100 years ago, who wrote brilliantly about how almost any creative process, and especially a social one, involves your idea becoming sort of fixed and institutionalized. And at that moment, you feel a certain alienation from your own idea because it is no longer yours and it will go in a different direction. And that happens to entrepreneurs, it happens to creators of artistic movements, and it certainly happens to, uh, to social innovators. And then there's the problem of evidence. And the more that we do actually try and test out promising ideas, it's almost inevitable the lots which seem really good will turn out not to work. And again, that's another pain and disappointment. And that's why if you want to be in this field, you have to be pretty resilient. Well, that takes me to, to two uh, often cited problems where I think in the book you want to say, well, yes, these are problems, but don't assume they're just problems because in a sense we need more of them. So people say we need more scaling. And people say we need more collaboration. And so the refrain is, if only we could have more scaling, if only we could have more collaboration. I think you're a bit more nuanced than that. You want to say that we need to question whether scaling is always possible, to recognise that very often it won't be because of the specificity of the relationship between the innovation and the context in which it develops. And you also want to say collaboration is extremely difficult and, and very kind of labour-intensive. So, you know, only do it if you need to do it almost. Yeah. So, so I mean, if, if you think what social innovations have really had the biggest effect in the last... 100 years, they're usually more sort of ideas which have spread by replication or encouragement or enthusiasm rather than being a single organisation which scaled like, you know, Vauxhall Cars or Google. Those did scale. But, uh, you know, ideas around disability rights or zero carbon living or veganism don't scale like that. They spread. They're much more organic in their ways uh, of growing. And it's just important to have a, a range of different metaphors, not just mm. the manufacturing uh, uh, scaling one there. And I've now completely forgotten your really important well, second the other, point. Uh, yeah. was about collaboration. But the other point about yeah, scaling yeah. is I think you want to say a lot of things just won't ever work anywhere else as well as the work, place they first worked in because the reason they worked was that very specific context. Yeah, but you only find that out through discovery. So that, that can be surprising. 
Uh, and one of the, you know, a healthy social innovation scene is often taking ideas from very different places, which may at first glance look like they're very context-specific, and then showing that they can be adapted and work in a quite different environment. So microcredit in the last 30 years has been spread all over the world with very surprising patterns of where it's worked and where it hasn't worked. Democracy. You know, 30 or 40 years ago, it was assumed it couldn't work in a country like Taiwan because of its deep Confucian culture. And now it's more creative in how it runs democracy than we are, we are here. The point about collaboration, just, just to echo what you said, in some ways, is, is, again, it's a statement of the obvious, but um, it sometimes is forgotten, that collaboration does involve time and labor and hassle. And it probably has a sort of U-shaped curve, whereas if you do too little of it, you don't achieve very much. But if you do too much of it, you don't achieve very much either because you're spending your whole time in a meeting with other people not doing stuff. So uh, we all have to become sort of smart about what kinds of collaboration are effective and impactful and not to see it as a good in itself. It's only a good in so far as it achieves results and doesn't become yeah, an end in itself. Great. A couple more questions from me. So be, be ready to ask your own questions in a, in, in a couple of minutes. Um, why did we write that blog more or less on the same day about why it is nobody is talking about it's not what you know it's not what you do it's the way that you do it nobody is saying that everyone is saying it's just not it's just what you want to do and i was saying in my blog which um you know david cameron talked about the post bureaucratic state he talked about the big society whatever we thought of these ideas these are big ideas about doing things yeah. differently uh, Tony Blair, that we both work for, talked about joined up, you know, government, uh, for example, and did some genuinely innovative uh, things. Absolutely nobody seems to be interested in this agenda now. Why have we lost this argument so catastrophically? Yeah, I mean, it is very striking for the last probably 40 years. If you aspired to be a political movement which aspired to run the country, you had to show some interest in how the government would be run. Um, Harold Wilson did so. Margaret Thatcher certainly did so. Uh, Blair, Brown, Major, Citizens Charter, you know, Cameron. They all, they all try to have a sort of philosophy of the how as well as, as the what government uh, should do. And in some ways it is remarkable that the contending parties, I've seen almost nothing from any of them which gives an account of how they would govern and why they've chosen these, uh, these models. They've also, I think, reverted to a very unhealthy and I think anachronistic view of old-style top-down government, where it's just spend more money, do more stuff from Whitehall, and kind of hope you'll fix problems. Whereas all of my experience and all that the book is about is essentially the premise that if you want to actually solve any system, health, education, whatever, if you're not tapping into the creativity of your society and the professionals and so on, you're very unlikely to achieve results. And that sort of spending uh, announcement, sort of class, slightly authoritarian tone feels to me very anachronistic. I think this is partly the UK. So again, I mentioned, you know, in Finland, where they have this wonderful new government in their 30s, all of those ministers and the prime minister absolutely at ease with everything I've said. In fact, social innovation is kind of woven into how they, mm -hmm. they think. A little bit the same is true, I think, in, in countries like Canada. The new government, Italy, is about to create a whole series of funds in this space, Macron too. I feel our politics, perhaps because it's run by slightly elderly men of different, certain backgrounds, Joe Swinson aside, has actually just gone back a generation or two. And I hope that is a blip 
because I'm pretty certain anyone who tries to run the British state in the way they think it will work will be very rapidly disappointed. Mm. Um, we use this phrase here to describe the RSA's approach to change. And as an organisation now, we spend an enormous amount of time thinking about change and the barriers to change. We don't rush into doing anything until we've tried to think deeply about that. And you've probably heard the phrase we use. We use this phrase, think like a system, act like an entrepreneur. I'm interested in your reflections on that as a, as a mindset for, for social innovation. Well, in a way, that's, I think that, that's probably the, though I don't quite use that phrase, but that's, that's the thought that I've tried to get running through the book. And it's the link a little bit between the minimalist and maximalist in Roberto Unger. That any society is an incredibly complicated set of things going on, from how your food is made, your kids are looked after, to transport. Um, and therefore, and it's healthy that it should be very complex and diverse and pluralistic. And if you want to change your society, in some ways you have to focus on the very specific, the very concrete, real things in real times and places. But if you're not also at the same time making the links to the whole system, the bigger picture, you're likely to fail or your project will just will not, not amount to very much. Equally, if you're trying to change things from the top, that's what I was just talking about, but you don't have a sense of the granularity, the social creativity, you'll just have manifestos and laws and they just won't work at all in practice. So I think that the, the challenge in all of this is how can we work at multiple levels, at the micro and at the macro at the same time, the slightly minimalist and the maximalist, and for the two levels to feed each other. So you get insights. And obviously, it's so true of decarbonization and, uh, and the just transition. That will be made up of millions of different actions, from us going vegan or stopping flying, through to the design of you know, power systems and laws and regulations. And one has to think at multiple levels to make sense of it. I just finally want to turn to you, Jeff, because it's a, a very interesting time for you. You've witnessed, what, ten, uh, ten years? Nearly, yeah. Yeah, finishing in a couple of weeks. Um, first of all, what, what, what in your own journey, thinking of the innovation, social innovations you've been involved in, you know, many of them, some of them persist, some of them weren't successful, mm -hmm. some of them were successful, but were then closed down as a consequence of, kind of political vicissitudes. Um, you know, whether it's the connection service or studio schools or uprising, you know, all the things you've been involved I'm just interested, what have you, if you could, if you go back, what are the things that you got wrong that you wish you'd known then that you know now? You talk about what yeah. in the book. You say when you were advising the government on climate change, you wish you'd understood more about the importance of the bottom up in that, in that strategy. Yeah, so I think, well, I guess the, 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 <clears throat> the two sort of opposite trajectories. So on the one hand, I went from working in, in government in Downing Street to a tiny community organisation in East London because I'd been convinced that you, you couldn't only do change from the top. It had to be a, a partnership between the top down and the bottom up, uh, the, the power of the state, but also the, the creativity and, and energy of communities, and that we needed a different way of, of linking those. But I guess the experience of the last 10 years, and in a way in leaving Nesta, um, I do feel in some ways the environment for the sort of stuff I care about has deteriorated, in this country at least. Uh, not just many years of austerity, but also a, a political class which has somewhat lost interest in this. And all of those sort of innovations can only thrive if there is uh, a favourable environment, an environment which opens up to some extent money, commissioning, procurement, 
you know, validation. Um, and in some parts of the world, the environment is so much better than 10 or 15 years, years ago. But here, it's, it's worse. And it's worse in terms of the actions of the state. It's definitely worse in terms of rhetoric. Our news media is largely uninterested in any of this, as you can see in the coverage of the election. So in a way, I've probably <laughs> returned to the, it's, it's not, a, not a new insight, but it's the point that on the one hand, you need to nurture the ideas, the projects. But if you're not also influencing the overall operating environment, lots of great ideas will fail, which otherwise would succeed. And the great, and I'll just end on this point, but it's, it's probably the single core point of the book. In the 19th century, science meant individual, gifted, mainly men, but some women, inventing stuff in their sheds and their attics, working in a very sort of ad hoc way. Then over a period of about 50 years, science became organized. It got funding, government labs, corporate R&D labs, universities, and so on. The end result of which was that millions of people actually had it as their job to do innovation in science. Uh, huge amounts of taxpayers' money went into it. Huge amounts of corporate money went into it. And the result was the flood of stuff you can see in a room like this. This is all the product of a very developed bureaucratic science system. And without that system, all of those ideas, well, most of them would never have got anywhere. And I think the same is true mm. with social innovation. If you don't have the system, the environment, then we will have uh, lots of social creativity, but most of it will burn out and we won't get its benefits. And we'll end up with the imbalances I talked about earlier. Let's take some questions from the floor. And there's, a, there's three in the back row. Let's take those three first. Uh, not two in the back row and one, in the, one from back row. Yeah, you first and then pass it in front of you. Yeah. Um, earlier on in the talk, can you tell us who you are, sorry? Uh, Bruce Tofield, a fellow of the RSA. Thanks. Earlier on in the talk, you you noted that uh, where there is money, the brain power goes in R and D. Now, by brain power, I guess you meant PhDs and graduates and so on. But there is a huge amount of brain power on the street. Uh, it was interesting a few days ago in one of the newspapers. There was an article about homelessness in Manchester. And uh, Andy Burnham was asked why he couldn't do as, as much, although he wanted to, as one or two individuals you know, who came off the street themselves had done in terms of creating safe spaces. And he said red tape. And the RSA will know that um, self-managed teams are enabled to use the brain power of people who often in managed environments are, are, are not able to do that in their working environment. So... It seems to me that the key thing is how do you enable the, the brain power of people, ordinary people on the street, you know, mostly without PhDs and not, often not graduates, yeah. Yeah. with the good ideas that they have, how can those not be prevented by red tape, which gets hold of them as soon as it gets large? How can local authorities, governments, the RSA or whoever, mm. actually enable these good ideas, which are bubbling up all the time? Great. to actually happen. Yeah. Then in front of you. Brian Davis, I'm a, a journalist, um, an energy journalist, said it happens. Over 10 years ago, about 2007, I found myself at an incredible conference, the most exciting conference I've ever been to in my life, on social enterprise. There were about 500 people there, and incredible things were happening, and stuff came out, but the biggest problem was the name as um, Jeff Skoll, who ran the conference, uh, who had set up the conference, said, and he was one of the founders of eBay, but he was putting all of his stuff into social change. Social innovation, 
I've never heard the term. Uh, I'm probably, I'm completely ignorant, uh, you know, an ignorant journalist, I'm probably the, the problem, but it sounds wonderful. In fact, personally, I would say I'd like to see a million Greta Thunbergs out there. How do you get this across so people go, just like they do, everybody understands punk rock, everybody understands what a hippie is, but how do you get the concept, Jeff, of social innovation into everybody's heads? Uh, and then, yeah. Thanks. There's a lot to reflect on, but I'll try and be brief. So I'm a frustrated and occasionally depressed career civil servant who's uh, moved and around. your name is? Richard Given. Right. Moved you. around many departments trying to find the opportunity to, to engage and innovate. Uh, it appears to me that where we've had success in central government, it's almost been <coughs> maximalism by, by stealth. We pick sort of problems that appear as if they're, they're below the political radar. And I do wonder if it's that, approach that, that will eventually get us to where we need to be and if we just continue to colonise that space that at some point there'll be a tipping point, the institutions will kind of fall over and, and, and things will change. Good to get your thoughts on that. So when, when will they fall over? Engage, build from the bottom up. It's pretty obvious that the machinery of government just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, would, I would love to um, believe that. My, my sort of fear is you can, you know, old systems can carry on uh, even if they're very ineffective for very long periods of time. Um, even though my gut is very much with you that we need to just get on with trying to solve problems, do stuff anyway, and if it's below the radar, uh, that's fine. Um, I think at certain points, though, you do, the reason why I mentioned the operating environment, I think if you don't influence that, it is much harder to make those things really flourish. Um, you mentioned Jeff Skoll, so he not only put lots of money into social entrepreneurship, he also set up participant media making lots of films because he, he thought it was so important actually to influence consciousness uh, and, uh, and lots of them were, were, were very successful. I don't have a good answer to your question as a whole because I think most people aren't really interested in social innovation as such. They're interested in the specifics, the stories of like around homelessness or park runs uh, and so on. But I'd hope for at least um, perhaps the sort of audience you get at the RSA or people working in government and so on, there I think social innovation, we do need it to become a common sense. It's just obvious that's how you should organise a society, creativity, R&D, and backing ideas in a systematic way with money and support, uh, etc. And that's, there probably is a task to be done there which journalists like you need to are better at solving uh, than me. But I hope the book at least provides some of the content then to communicate uh, in different ways. And so, so two, two very live examples of that. One is, is homelessness. As you say, um, I mean, one of the, the very common themes in social innovation practice is trying to tap into lived experience, the insights of people at the sharp end of problems. Uh, whether that's you know, sleeping on the streets or, or uh, with a drug problem. I think what you then need, though, is to combine them in work with people, maybe not with PhDs, but people who understand how you know, local government works or health systems. If you only fetishise lived experience, you can get slightly imbalanced views. But equally, this is one field where the experts aren't all that expert on their own unless they are talking to people with lived experience. And the example, you know... Um, Street homelessness, as Matthew knows, in London was reduced about 80% through 
uh, uh, a strategy I was involved in, which was a classic social innovation strategy, a collaboration across boundaries, completely different ways of organizing money and teams and so on. Uh, and it worked much better than anyone would have guessed. Uh, the tragedy is that Whitehall has almost entirely forgotten that. No ministers are even aware of how that was achieved, and so our numbers have been shooting up again. Uh, Manchester is at least sort of trying to, under Andy Burnham, do something about it. And it's the final example of that, which I think is, is an intriguing one for, for Britain now. I, I, you mentioned this in one of your comments earlier. There's often quite an interesting phenomenon in social innovation where something is, is first of all experienced by lots of people in their lives, but it's often experienced as a private phenomenon. And then slowly people start to name it as something which is more public and social. Civil society then usually starts working on it and then eventually it gets noticed by um, you know, researchers and government, etc., and then eventually becomes an action plan. And isolation and loneliness is a very good example of that. So no one talked about that from a policy point of view 10, 15 years ago, even though we were already getting epidemics of loneliness, not just amongst old people, but teenagers, refugees, and so on. Then over the years, there's been more and more naming of it, understanding of it, describing it, and then eventually we got a minister for loneliness two years ago, who lasted a few weeks. <laughs> she was very lonely and, and resigned. Uh, uh, <laughs> But I mean, it goes back to where I started. This is one of the great issues of our time. How do you actually attend to the fact that a lot of people really lack the most basic sort of mutual social support around them? And this, is a, and this gets back to, I guess, the heart of your question. To my mind, the ideal on something like street homelessness or loneliness, this is where a government can work with foundations and others to then say, well, why don't we challenge different places to show, to try out different <coughs> methods and see which ones work? Uh, you know, see which city can reduce its street numbers by 50% within a year. See which places can reduce loneliness levels. Uh, and indeed, there's quite a, a rigorous metric for loneliness, um, which I could talk about another time. So it, it's, it's entirely conceivable to turn society into something much more like a, a living lab and a constant experimentation and improvement and mutual learning around these issues. And my hope is that's where... 10 or 20 years' time, it will be obvious that a civil service, that's how you run a, a society nowadays, is constantly discovering, learning, trying out, uh, uh, so that you don't just accept problems as acts of, you know, as fate or nature. So we've run out of time. Jeff, we've had you speak here many occasions, and, and I, I just wanted to reserve the last question for myself, which is that you, you're, you're kind of three things. You're a public intellectual. You are an organisational leader. You know, you set up Demos, you've run Nesta... Um, uh, um, the, um, what was it, the Michael Young, Young Foundation. Young Foundation. <laughs> but you're also an innovator yourself, and a bit of a kind of, you know, actually set innovations in the... I mean, I noticed in the book you said mm. no one has yet had... A, no one has yet developed a full theory of social innovation. That would require you really to focus your time on being a public intellectual rather than an organisational leader and an innovator yourself. What's, tell me what's, what's coming next. Um... Well, in, in the short run, I'm, I'm more going to get stuck into the doing it side, actually, because personally, I get most pleasure and learning from being directly involved in very real-life projects. Uh, so that's, in the short run, what I'm going to be doing, being an innovator, I guess. 
And then possibly after that, some patterns will emerge and I'll try and write another book. But uh, there won't be any books for a while. <laughs> well, we'll be delighted to have you back here in any, in any guise you want. I, I, now, this is the ultimate vote of confidence I can give you in this book, which is that I'm actually buying this book uh, as a Christmas present for RSA staff. So any member of RSA staff who wants this, any member of RSA staff who wants this book will get a copy for their, uh, their Christmas present because any works at the RSA should read this book. Uh, you should read this. If you're an expert on social innovation, you should read this book because it will uh, crystallise your, expert, uh, your um, expertise. If you don't know anything about social innovation, you can become an expert overnight. Uh, literally. literally. So uh, I think it's available outside and, uh, and Jeff will sign it. So do uh, get a copy. It's, it's a really fascinating and important book. It uh, just remains for me to ask you to join me in thanking our speaker today, Jeff Moore. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.